Hello, friends, and welcome to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I'm your host. And we're back after a week off. Uh, last week, I was at the beach with the family, so I apologize for missing a week there. But hey, got to take vacations every once in a while and hit that reset button. But I'm back in the hot seat and ready to bring you hot fire podcasting content just for your earbuds, your mind, and your soul. But before we get to today's episode, let's give a special shout out to all of the newest patrons that have stepped up to be sustaining members of the Bikes or Death podcast. As we learned recently, I can't do it without you. And so your support is critical to producing this show. So let's go ahead and give a big, warm welcome to the newest patrons, starting with Christopher Barata, Carrier Dennis, Miles Camp, Brian Farron. Mike Zandi, Timothy Default, Ryan Gilmore, Ryan Zimmer, Katie McGuire, Bradley Ortega, Lars Smith, Martin Holdridge, Johnny D. Martin, Brent Young, Guinevere Birch, Kevin Emery, Blake Kingfisher, Kristen Wiley, Andrew Cullen, and Kevin Killitz. Seriously, thank you all so much for signing up. Make sure you uh, join us over on the private Bikes or Death Patreon page over there on Facebook. Get in on the conversation and find out some behind the scenes going ons over here at Bikes or Death. We got a great little community over there and I would love for you to join us online. Also coming soon for patrons only is the next Bikes or Death after party episode going to be with Claire Panisha who I interviewed while I was up in Stillwater, Oklahoma a few weeks ago. And due to the content of this episode, we've decided to take it off the main airwaves and make it available to patrons only. So if you're interested in having access to that exclusive content, get in on the conversation over on Facebook. And of course, take advantage of some patron perks in addition to supporting this show and making sure that I can continue to produce it. You can find all of that over at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. All right, everybody. Well, something a little bit different today in the way of advertising. Typically, companies would just send me a script to read. But this week, I thought I would bring in Jared Lindsmeyer, who's one of the owners of Ruby Coffee Roasters, to tell us about his company right from his mouth. Today, I want to dig into you, Jared, one of the owners of Ruby Coffee Roasters. You know, when I put out like a call to action and said, hey, Bikes or Death is, is open to working with some companies, you were one of the first ones that uh, reached out to me. And actually, you were a listener of the podcast and stuff. And so I wanted to know, like, why do you think Ruby Coffee would resonate with the Bikes or Death listeners? Well, I'm a big fan of the podcast, so I'm excited to be a supporter and excited to collaborate with you as a cyclist myself, just knowing that Ruby supports a variety of cycling endeavors and projects and clubs. So we have a local club here where we are and we make donations to events and a variety of cycling related lifestyle and cultural events. So I think listeners would like to know that about us. But also, I think the values and ideals that define Ruby are really probably appealing to somebody who identifies more as 
uh, bike packing, ultra endurance kind of adventure mindset. And I guess by that, I mean, we have some products that specifically are, are focused on that sort of category with our ready to drink or single serving options, but also just the ethics behind what we do. The fact that we are this tiny independently owned business out in the middle of Wisconsin. I think that just the story I felt, I felt would really kind of resonate with your listeners. I mean, that is why I wanted, uh, I wanted to bring you on so you could share a little bit about, you know, you as a person and you as a company, um, because whenever we hopped on the phone to have our initial call, all the things that you talked about are, are the exact types of things that I do believe in, the types of companies I want to uh, promote. I'm really looking forward to this partnership. I'm really looking forward to more of these chats and we can maybe get into more of the technical aspects of how to roast coffee and the different options that you all have and stuff. Well, that sounds great. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. It's been a lot of fun being able to be honestly in a position now with this business to be able to kind of like reach out and support projects that I personally am excited about too, because it wasn't too long ago that Ruby was just sort of an idea of mine and we were roasting coffee in a garage in the house that I grew up in. So now eight years later, here we are and, you know, I get to do some more fun stuff, which is really cool. Well, I appreciate it, man. Looking forward to the partnership and man, really enjoying the coffee. Until next time, I'll just be drinking some coffee. (laughs) Until next time. Okay. Bikes are death. Thank you, Jared, so much for coming on and sharing with the Bikes are Death audience. And remember that listeners of this show receive 15% off a one-time purchase over at rubycoffeeroasters.com, or you get 20% off the first shipment of a subscription. Okay, well, today's episode is with Sarah Swallow, who is a person that I've followed and enjoyed her content, her stories, uh, just following along as she's gone on all sorts of pretty amazing trips. She started out as a bicycle shop owner and found out that wasn't the right path for her and was able to carve out a really neat niche in this new sector of expedition bike packer or expedition cyclist or whatever you want to call it. But I've been a fan of hers for a long time. And so this was a great chance to get to know her a little bit and, of course, talk about her second place finish on this year's Tour Divide Classic. Now, she did an excellent interview with Jambi Jambi, who was her social media liaison for this year's Tour Divide. And then after she completed, they did a video interview. And that interview was very heavily about Tour Divide. I'll be honest, I kind of spent a little bit of time getting to know her a little bit in in the beginning. And we had a, a time window that we were trying to fit in. So we didn't get quite as into the weeds with Tour Divide stuff as I would have liked to. But, you know, for me, a lot of times it really comes down to just getting to know the people behind the Instagram post or the story or the rad trip or whatever it is. And I truly enjoyed getting a chance to get to meet and hang out with Sarah for a little while. And I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, let's have Miles Arbor take it away with the Bikes or Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. 
Yeah, first of all, I just wanted to congratulate you on uh, finishing the Tour Divide. Second place is awesome. And uh, I guess, first off, how long have you been off the Divide and, and how do you feel? How are you feeling? Any aches and pains? Um, yeah, I guess today would be two weeks. And yeah, no, I, I feel feel great. Is it? Yeah, it's two weeks. I think I finished like July um, 1st. So yeah, it'd be two weeks today. Yeah, no, no aches and pains. Yeah, I I mean, like I had like lost weight, you know, during the ride. So I've gained all that weight back, which is great. Back to my normal, normal weight. But yeah, yeah, I've just been kind of taking it easy and um, felt felt pretty good trying to stretch the quads out. But I've I've been preparing for um, the rift gravel race, so I haven't really been taking much time off the bike. I've you know been riding every day still and started doing like intervals to try to like get my. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Yeah, yeah, right into intervals, huh? Yeah. When it when is that race and what? I'm actually not familiar with that one. That's a week from tomorrow, Saturday. So, um, and that's, uh, you know, I guess that's July 24th or 26th or something, but, um, but yeah, it's a 125 mile gravel race in Iceland. So it goes through, you know, crosses rivers, goes over like volcanic fault lines and volcanic. Wow. So it sounds like, you know, it might not be like the longest distance, I mean, it's still pretty long, but like, you know, it sounds like it's the elements and the, um, the route surface that makes this ride exciting. And of course the scenery. So I'm excited. It'll be the first time I've traveled since COVID before COVID. So. Yeah, no, no kidding. A lot of us are kind of, you know, first back time back racing races are opening up and you can travel again with restrictions. So it is exciting. And that, and it's also exciting from a podcasting standpoint, because now we have more interesting things to talk about for a year. There is kind of like, so how's your lockdown going, you know, and right. Everybody's doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So it's a lot more exciting to be able to get on here and, and talk to people. Have you uh, are you familiar with Chris Burkard? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So he's been on the show a couple times and that's kind of how he came on my radar was through his uh, expeditions in Iceland specifically. He owns the uh, record for the, um, it's the Y wow cyclothron, like cyclothron, whatever what, they call it, something like that, where it's the ring road all the way around Iceland. Uh, so he, uh, holds the world record for the fastest time around Iceland. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> I didn't know. It is. It. And he's yeah. a photographer, yeah, you like, know? And, you know, I, I rode with Chris last year and he's a relatively new cyclist, like within the last like two or three years. And he is just like doing all these amazing things. And yeah, I was definitely, um, following heavily when he was covering the erupting volcano so i like got kind of sucked into the volcano coverage for sure so i'm looking dude his volcano coverage was on fire (laughs) (laughs) totally (laughs) totally yeah yeah, I love, he's a great ambassador for the sport. I mean, he has a huge platform and can capture. He's a very good visual storyteller and a written storyteller and all those things. And yeah, his story is amazing. I mean, just picked up a bike, started commuting in California and really got bit by the bug. And it, it's not uncommon. You know, we talk about this a lot where when you get bit by the cycling bug, it can consume your life, you know? Well, first, when when were you bit by the cycling bug, if we're going to call it that? I mean, when you know, everybody goes through their evolution and at some point it's just like, okay, this is my thing. 
Right, right. Well, you know, so my evolution was probably, you know, a little different because I started working with bikes before I started like riding bikes as like a hobby. And so, yeah, I started working at a bike rental in Loveland, Ohio, when I was 12 years old. And I worked there for eight years. And that like experience working with with bikes just made me realize like, not only do I like to work like for myself, because I kind of just worked by myself at that bike rental and managed, you know, all the day-to-day operations. But I also just love seeing like how much joy, like traveling to Loveland, Ohio, this like, you know, small town um, and renting a bike and like how much joy it was just to like ride a cruiser bike down a, a bike path along a river. And, you know, for these folks that would travel from, you know, downtown or, you know, they would travel from all over to do that. That was the bug for working with bikes. And then I, you know, started working at bike shops after that and then, you know, eventually owned my own shop. But um, I didn't really start riding bikes until I graduated from high school and I was, you know, done with, I had played field hockey and my parents were runners. And so I thought like running was like the only thing that you could do for, for exercise. And I hated running. Like I've never liked running. I've just, you know, terrible. And so my dad, you know, he had, he had had multiple knee surgeries and he was told he couldn't run anymore. And so he had picked up um, road cycling uh, just you know, the year before and my mom had gotten a bike. And so once I graduated from high school, I started riding her bike on, on rides with my dad and just quickly got into just the, I, you know, just loved how the type of like exercise at first, you know, like how, you know, it was just so low impact, but then also just eventually it just went down. I just went down a total rabbit hole. Like I did, you know, sprint triathlons and cycle cross and mountain bike and commuted everywhere. And then once I found like gravel riding and bike touring, like I, that was like a whole nother phase of just like a deep dive. So I've just, I just love all aspects of riding. I just I, like anything that involves bike riding, I will enjoy. But these days I don't ride very much. I don't choose to ride on the road very much, the pavement. So, yeah. I might could guess, but why is that? Oh, it's just because it just is so, um, you know, unsafe, like with cars, but, but not only that, it's just, it's, you know, you get a certain amount of like peace and, and, um, enjoyment from like having the solitude of a gravel road or single track trail. Like there's a whole element of anxiety and stress that's involved with riding on pavement when there's cars always passing, like you can't even escape it. Like, you know, cause you're always on the side of, if even if you're on the side of the road, you still have all that, that noise and, stuff so yeah i just like the yeah you just yeah mentally i for me i can only but for me mentally even you're always having to think about the cars you're always having to be extremely safe and you just can't relax and like lower the the stress of the ride for me uh, I'm, i'm the same way i i avoid the road like a plague i'm all about safety man i mean we it's too often we're hearing about somebody getting injured or, or hit or something like that. And it's just not for me if I can avoid it. Right. Totally. And if we're, if we're going to talk about relying on motor vehicleists with their cell phones to be concerned about us, you know, I mean, that's, it's not the world we live in, you know? And so getting off the beating road is where it's at. 
when did you find gravel? What what year did you kind of find that transition into like the outdoors and and kind of exploring more on your bike? Yeah, I think I found it in probably like 2011 or 2012. I just kind of started doing I I had done like this um I think it was called like the Frankenbike 50, some grassroots ride in Ohio. And you know, I had been doing cyclocross um right before this. And I okay. Like I did cycle cross for like three years and I, you know, it was fun, but I just didn't like it. Well, I wasn't cut out for cycle cross, you know, like the short, <laughs> short bursts um, of energy, but I just love this Franken bike 50 because I was just riding my cycle cross bike on these like dirt roads. And, you know, with my background with doing like road cycling, it just kind of combined a lot of the things I like, you know, it was just, you know, not as technical as single track, but more entertaining than riding pavement. And so that ride led me to kind of start exploring, you know, Southern, um, Southwest Ohio and like the gravel roads that were, you know, within two hours drive from me in Cincinnati And yeah, so I just started exploring and that's really like looking for gravel roads and finding gravel roads and riding gravel roads in Southwest Ohio and Northern Indiana and um, I'm sorry, Northern Kentucky and Eastern Indiana was kind of like how I just fell in love with Ohio for the, in that region of the world for the first time in my life. Cause I kind of resented there for, for a while. (laughs) Are you still in Ohio? I'm not. No, I'm in Durango, Colorado. And actually, my parents just sold their um, their house of 26 years and moved into an Airstream full time. So Ohio is no longer no longer home. (laughs) (laughs) How much are you influencing your parents and how much are your parents influencing you? I stalked you on social. Well, I've been following you for a long time and I know your parents ride and uh, it seems like uh, there's a good dynamic there. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, um, I definitely started riding bikes because of my parents. Like, um, you know, I, my dad got me into it. And, um, and then I think I also this like concept of like signing up for big challenges, like intimidating challenges. I get that from my dad as well, because he, he does that. And, you know, that he's done unbound multiple times. He's done lots of different big events and, you know, he's not, he's by no means a very quick cyclist, but he is just, uh, you know, consistent. He, he still goes out there. It doesn't matter if he's like last place or whatever. It's like, he's, he's doing it. So yeah, just super inspired by him. And, um, but I think in terms of like living a bit more nomadically, they definitely got that from me because when I went and started like riding my bike across the country and living in my van, there were definitely a lot of questions about like what my plan was, like what I was doing. It wasn't like as accepted as it is today where you can learn how to do it on YouTube, you know, like. So yeah, it's just so, um, it's kind of coming full circle. It's just really awesome to see them making this step. And I just think it's like so good, you know, for people to just kind of step out of that, step out of your comfort zone and switch things. I'm excited for them. 
Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm excited. I mean, you know, I assume that they're retired now and they got their Airstream and they can go visit beautiful places and do cool things. And, you know, life doesn't get stale if you're out there always exploring and finding new ways to push yourself or new things to see or whatever. Totally, totally. Yep. And I'm one of six, six kids. So they've got a lot of, um, a lot of my siblings to go visit all around the country. So they won't be bored. <laughs> what, where do you come in the line of the six? I'm third. Okay. You're right in the middle. You're the middle child. <laughs> I am very classic middle child. <laughs> yeah. What is a classic? I was the oldest. So I know I beat up on my brothers and sisters pretty well. And I was a test kid. What is the middle kid known for? Well, so like my oldest sibling, I would say like both my older siblings, I consider this is just from my perspective, you know, like they probably have a totally different story, but like, I always looked at them as like the golden child. Like my, my oldest sister was very responsible and yeah, just never got into any trouble. And then my older brother seemed to just like, you know, he was like the golden boy, the golden child, you know, he could just get away with everything. Like didn't really matter. But I was kind of like the true troublemaker. Like I, (laughs) I would actually get into some real trouble and I think I pushed um, the boundaries of what my parents were comfortable with, you know, a bit up until that point. And so I was a bit more disciplined. I mean, I received a lot more discipline, but, you know, after, you know, after me, you earned more discipline. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, all my younger sister siblings, you know, my parents were broken in by the time they got me out of the house. And, uh, you know, I broke my parents, like really kind of loosened up the the restrictions and, and I'm a, I, I was the oldest and I did it differently than your brothers. I went to jail six times before the age of 21. And so I was just nothing crazy, just ju- drugs and just being a loot, you know, just being dumb. But man, I, I did all the things. And then my brothers and sisters were like, okay, we don't want to go down that road. Like I gave them every example to like not follow that path. And my parents could be like, See, don't want to do that. Yeah, 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 totally. And, you know, I think I did a similar thing. I mean, I didn't go to jail, but like, I think my siblings, there were some of my siblings that were like, I don't want to be like Sarah, you know? (laughs) Did that have anything to do with you working at a bike shop when you were 12? I'm curious about that. Was that your own thing or were your parents trying to control you by giving you a job or what was that? I always kind of had a thing of with the authority and, but I didn't really become super troublemaker until, um, until I was in high school. Um, so that was like, I think it was just my parents just, they're like, if you want something, if you want to buy something, then you need to, you know, pay for it yourself. That was kind of what, why I kind of started working in the bike rental. And I think, you know, honestly, I think it was, it really was really good for me. I mean, it really taught me, um, um, really good sense, like work ethic. Um, you know, my, my boss was, uh, ex, uh, military and a firefighter. And so, Oh yeah. Um, very, uh, he always had a really like nice long list of hard things for me to do and would make sure I would do them, you know, very well. But I think it was a good thing for me at at that age. And my work ethic was kind of outside, you know, separate from my like social, my social life, my, the trouble happened in my social life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. As it, as it tends to do. Well, 
paint a picture for me. What what do you do for a living? I do things. Um, but you know, what I've just come to tell people is adventure cyclists. And, um, and I say that because I am sponsored by, um, by specialized bicycles, ride with GPS, Rafa and Umbras. And they sponsor me and in return, I, you know, use their equipment. Oh yeah, you got them. That's good. I watched your Jambi Jambi. I thought you were going to have them on. So I wore the, uh, I wore the umbras. I normally do, but I haven't been outside yet today. So. There you go. Yeah. I don't need to put them on yet. <laughs> yeah. I just, I just got my umbras. They sent me a pair to try out. And so it, I'm getting, I'm digging them, man. You don't have to worry about them like signing around. Exactly. They're so that like, I got to say that that is like one of the, my most favorite products in the world. Like I always have them on and I have so many like different pairs now. And it's so nice because they're just so small. Like you can, like I've got a clear set, I've got a yellow lens and then I've got the darker lens and like just they're as big as lenses essentially. Um, and you just always, yeah, that's a, it's, it's so great. And they're so comfortable before I had ombras. I like had a really hard time wearing sunglasses just because they weren't very comfortable and I'd lose them or break them. And, um, and so I, because of that, I wasn't like protecting my eyes enough. And so yeah. I like you get stuff in your eyes, you know, like you damage your eyes from the sun, but yeah, now I'm just wearing them all the time. <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> yeah. I, I really love them. I was, you know, for people who don't know, they, they have like a string instead of like, a hard, um, the arm, you know, that's typically there. That's a, a fi- fixed piece of plastic or whatever. It's just a string and it like holds onto your head yeah. and it's, you don't even have to put them on very tight. You just very lightly and they won't go anywhere. They just stay right where they're supposed to be. So I just got back from the beach, a family beach vacation. And, you know, last time I was at the beach, I lost a $150 pair of Oakley's. Right. But like, you don't have to worry about these. So anyway, yeah. great advertising for Umbra's. Yes, exactly. It's it's easy to do. It's it really is. The first time I went through Chick Fil A, I mean, the first time I wore them, I went through a Chick Fil A line. The first person that saw me was like, "Oh my gosh, I saw those on Instagram. What are those? Oh, those are so cool!" And like asking me all kinds of questions and stuff. I was like, "Okay, these are cool." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they they're a Kickstarter um, company. They started on Kick Kick. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So you're a, you're a professional adventure cyclist. You're, yeah. I think you're one of the few, um, you know, yeah. Lael, um, there's, I mean, Lachlan Morton for sure. He's come from the road, I, but there, there's not a lot of people that have carved out a niche in this kind of new bike packing space. Can you talk to a little bit about what that process was like and how you even created a job in an industry that's like, like, this didn't really exist, you know, five, six years ago or whatever, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's when I started was five or six years ago. You know, I had the bike shop until 2015 and really I got involved. I first, um, you know, became an adventure cyclist in uh, 2014 or 2015 um, when Specialized reached out. They had been seeing all the... So what I did at Swallow Bicycle Works was we would go on rides like epic gravel long distance gravel rides like day rides like but they would just be you know all different kinds of conditions and and long day gravel rides which you know at that time gravel wasn't as big as it is today oh for sure yeah and we were doing we were doing some bike tours we had just gotten into into bike touring um but yes i would promote like 
the bike shop through using photos from the rides that we were doing um, and telling stories and writing stories on our, on Swallow by Scorks website. And um, yeah, so I got hooked up with specialized through that. Essentially I used that first year of like the income that I received from specialized to um, commit to doing the trans America trail, um, the dual sport motorcycle route across um, the U S from East to West that follows all dirt roads. So um, we had already, which, which one is that who, who organized that one? That's a, um, a dual sport motorcycle route. Um, And I got a Sam can't remember Sam's name, but, um, but it's called the tap for short. Like people, it's known amongst dual sport motorcyclists. It's like a through through route for for them, and it's all on gravel roads and you know bikepacking since then bikepacking.com or, or someone has um, created a race on that route. I think that's Billy Rice that did that. That's what I'm trying to recall. Yeah. Um, but sorry to Call get you off track there. American trail race. I think that's America. That's what it is. Yes. So, but yeah, Tom and I were the first cyclists that we know of that rode that route, you know, on bicycle. We had already been in a place where we, we needed to kind of, we knew that the bike shop wasn't something we wanted to do anymore. So we were like, okay, we're going to close the bike shop and go do this ride and then come back and decide the next move. And so on that ride, I just kind of like realized that, that I just loved doing that, like, and that I want to do that more. And that's all I knew. And so, you know, there's kind of a bit of a a transition phase. We moved out to um, Petaluma, California for a little bit. Um, We were going to maybe work for Bruce Gordon cycles. And then, you know, again, I was like, again, I don't want to be in a bike shop. Like I know I keep getting sucked in. Like I want, you know, there's some element, um, there's some part of me that loves working in bike shops and loves that atmosphere. But I was really being called internally to do, to ride my bike more. And so again, we, um, rode all throughout the Pacific Northwest. We rode from Portland to Whitefish and then from Whitefish all the way, you know, through British Columbia, back down to Washington, through Washington, and just kept doing these rides and kind of living in the van and um, did the Baja Divide and just kept going with it. And all the while, I was just kind of focusing on how to make, you know, this lifestyle more sustainable for myself. Yeah. And so it first started with the sponsorship. The original sponsorship was specialized, but then I just kind of sought out, you know, additional sponsors, but I also, you know, wrote stories for magazines and and blogs. And um these days, you know, I'm also uh putting on events. I'm publishing bike routes and um and then you know I just step down from radical adventure riders, which as when I was part of it, it was called uh, WTF bike explorers. So um, that was kind of a project I spent four years on. So I, I kind of do different projects at different times and supplement my income in a lot of different ways. Yeah. It's really interesting just as a, a bystander that I'm 
you know, I, I see you traveling. I mean, not during COVID, obviously, but, you know, before, I mean, you were everywhere just traveling all the time. And I'm always curious, you know, how are people able to do that sustainably? You know, I mean, there's not a lot of people that are doing it. And uh, so, but I'm hopeful. I think, I think that, you know, as the sport grows, there's more money and it's going to allow for more people to be able to pursue this as, as something that they really love doing bike shops have always kind of been the place that people go if they want a career in the cycling industry, if they're not racing, right? It's like racing or bike shop. And where, where do you think you fit in? Uh, you just came off the tour divide as a racer. You're going to a gravel race, but you're also huge into touring. Where do you think that you fit into that mix? I mean, I see myself as like more of an adventure lifestyle type of person. You know, the racing, like I said, I approach races as someone like taking on a challenge for themselves to just see where they kind of stack up. I have... um you know, I say I'm not very competitive until I'm like actually in the moment. And then, <laughs> oh, I do have a competitive side, but I wasn't like mentally prepared, you know, ahead of time. <laughs> to, you know, so I don't really consider myself a racer. And something that I just absolutely love about my job is just that I don't have to be competitive to do what I'm doing. Like I'm, I'm sponsored to, to kind of live the life that I want to live. And I really love that. And I think a lot of companies are becoming less focused on the results and more focused on the person as a whole and like what they're contributing to the sport. So I am happy to see that. But yeah, I still think of myself as more of like a lifestyle adventure, but still someone that wants to challenge themselves through races and events and stuff. Because sometimes like, yeah, I just want to see, I just want to see how I do, you know? Yeah, for sure. That's a great segue to the tour divide, but but let let's start with social media because you know to some extent you know you are um, I mean you're a paid athlete you're a paid I, I don't know you're, you're kind of in the gray lines between an athlete and an adventure cyclist but um, you know you're paid to tell stories and live this lifestyle but I also know because I follow you that you struggle with social media like probably many people in the outdoors they don't aren't really like wanting to sit behind a laptop or a, you know, iPhone screen and just thinking of, you know, content to put out. But can you, can you talk about some of your own personal struggles with social media? Yeah. Like I think I've always struggled a little bit with social media, but I think it really came to a head last year just because of all the social angst that, that was happening last year. And I realized that, you know, it's, it was just really confusing, like what, you know, how to share. And yeah, I don't know, I I, I kind of just struggle with the whole, um, you know, whether it's real and community and like trusting people. And yeah, spending time, it's like, it's an addiction. Uh, social media is an addiction. And I'm addicted to it. And so I've, <laughs> I've realized that and uh, realized the importance of managing that time. And then I also struggle with I, I don't post very much, you know, when I post, I, I post when I have something important to say, but I struggle with the whole like, 
being an advertisement um, kind of stuff. So I've really kind of negotiated that aspect of having to promote um, companies through my Instagram account, which is nice. Um, you know, what I do for companies is I collect content like photos and videos and I send them that content and they can use it in their, the only, the way that they want to use it. Yeah. So that's, that's been really helpful, but yeah, I think what I kind of realized was just that I'd like to d- diversify the way that I want to communicate um, with people. I'm, I consider myself more of a, like a medium format to long format um, writer. And so the short, you know, caption style um, Instagram, I wouldn't be able to get into like the depth that I wanted to get into and the nuance. And so um, I kind of focused, started focusing my energy um, last year into making a newsletter and kind of putting more energy back into my website. And that feels like it's more permanent, you know, and yeah, just with social media, I'm just being just very conscious of my use. So when I don't have to post or share anything, I delete the app and I block the website on my phone. So I can't access it on my phone. And that's, that's about all I need to manage my, my use because I can still get on if I need to check, you know, on my browser, on my computer, but that's not as like easy on my phone. Cause you realize like when you start doing that, like how frequently you get on your phone just to like look at Instagram and you know, when you can't do it, you realize how often you actually go through those movements to try to to try to get on there. So, um, yeah, I've just been kind of really, you know, I've also been reading a lot about the impacts of social media. And I think, um, I think it could be, it is a a problem for a lot of people. Have you read that book irresistible? No, I haven't. I have not read that. I haven't read it either. I listened to a podcast with the author of the book. And so I kind of got bits and pieces through that, but essentially talking about our addiction to uh, technology. Um, Yeah, we're all, and I mean, that's why it makes it an interesting concept. I mean, as as humans, I mean, uh, you know, Facebook and social media has been around for what, 10 years or something like that. I mean, it hasn't, we're still like learning how to like interact with it on many ways. And it is a weird thing because like, you know, for me as a content creator, I am able to like use their platform to connect directly with my audience. There's no middleman, you know, and so there's some great things about it, but it is extremely addictive, you know? And so I've, I haven't gone as far as you. I, I don't think I'm in a place where I could do what, what you've done, but it, it is neat that you've been able to kind of cultivate these relationships and, we all need to do this, build the life that you want. Right. And it doesn't, it doesn't happen overnight, you know, but it takes, it takes time, but you know, find the right brands and the right partners that will work with you in a way that's authentic to yourself. When you were talking, um, are you familiar with Alexander Houchin? Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. The single, she rides everything single speed. She's one tour divide and uh Colorado trail race. She's done or yeah, she's done a lot of stuff, but uh, she's sponsored by Chumba and uh, she doesn't have an Instagram account, doesn't have uh, Facebook only has a, she will not post it. You know, she's like, I won't, she has a blog and that's it. But that's another example of a brand to, it's like, I get it. We just want you to be you and do it your way. And let's figure out a way to work together. You know? 
Right, right. Totally. I, I think that's, that's great. And, you know, I've got a lot of friends here in, in Durango, like most of my immediate friends, um, don't have social media, don't use social media. So I'm kind of actually like the oddball out, like with all these like social media life stresses and, and it's like not relatable for, for them. But, um, but yeah, I think also is, you know, I got to say that I've met some of my best friends, um, you know, through because of social media. But then there's also this aspect where, you know, you think you're friends with people, but really this is not a real, um, <laughs> it's not real, you know, it's sometimes, you know, you got to look at it like it's not real. And, and, you know, it's funny because I've been talking, um, talking with some folks and just talking about how, real of experience I had with the community that showed up, um, before the tour divide, the community that showed up to help me, um, when my bike broke, um, (laughs) before the tour divide. And I was just like, that's just such a rewarding and like fulfilling example of uh, real community. And, uh, that felt so good. Like, and especially like after a year of COVID, you know, you're, everybody was so isolated. And so they're only, outlet for community was Instagram. And so it's um, just really important to kind of, you know, make sure you're getting both, (laughs) you know. I appreciate you coming on so much and everybody who comes on this show, because when I started the podcast, it was, I started it three years ago because I wanted to get the story behind the social media post. You know, there wasn't a lot of, uh, I mean, other than like a blog post that you could read, there wasn't a lot of, Hey, let's just talk about how did you get into cycling? How did you, you know, whatever, whatever your path is and everybody has a different path, which makes it interesting. But I'm like you, I'm a, I'm a medium. I'm probably on the more long form uh, side of things. I just did a Bobby Wendell interview that was four hours long. Wow. So I mean, you like, (laughs) you you know, Huh? No, 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 not surprising. Yeah, he got the record. Alexander Houchin was she was she was three hours. Uh, we've had some long ones, but you just you know, like if you're trying to talk about something and express an idea or an opinion on something, and you're trying to put it in a succinct way on social media, and you edit it and make sure it's perfect and all that stuff, you you lose so much of who Sarah Swallow really is, you know, and so. I, I'm always so grateful whenever we have a chance to just talk and be like, you know, what are you thinking? What, what how do you approach and whatever it is that we're going to talk about, you know? Right. Yeah. Like who is this person? What are their values? Like what's behind the image on in- Instagram? Because you don't, yeah. you can't actually get that um, through Instagram. So yeah, podcasts and stories and videos are all just uh, kind of add, you know, just another layer of, of, people people speaking of social media jambi jambi is very good at social media yes, uh, like <laughs> she might be the best yep uh you know and I, I i'm sure a lot of people were following along but jambi jambi was your social media liaison uh for your tour divide this year which was f- fabulous um how did where did that idea come from did it was it born out of your own like angst with social media like yeah it was honestly like I knew like when I decided to do the tour divide, I was like, at the same time, I was like, okay, well, what am I going to do in terms of like 
content, you know? And so I just wanted to take as much pressure off of myself as possible for this, for this ride. And part of that was not having to deal with um, social media and like having to post to Instagram. Cause I knew it was going to be, it was going to be too hard to do that. And so, yeah, my first thought, you know, Georgia and I have known each other for um, probably like three or four years now. She's come to the U.S. multiple times. We've done tours together. And I went out to Australia and we did like a three-week bike tour together. And just we just connect so great. And, you know, we stayed in touch all through COVID. And we were talking, you know, really uh, pretty regularly, you know, every couple of weeks. And so, um, yeah, we, we feel really good. And um, so, yeah, it was my first thought to just ask Georgia to, you know, just take over my Instagram account while I do the tour divide. And, you know, we had no idea like how that would look. Um, we were just kind of like, we're like, you, like I put, you know, I was like, you do you and you tell me what you think, you know, I'll, I'll do and, or what you think I should do to like help this along. And, um, yeah, she kind of just like took the reins and, and gave me like, projects to do like filming YouTube videos and and just taking certain videos and she would you know she'd just get in her her news person persona and just do all those awesome skits and just kind of blend both yeah it was just so dang refreshing because um not only was it just fun to work with my friend on this but um but she would just like tell me you know take some videos like you know just give me some loose uh, direction. And I would just take the videos. They wouldn't be perfect. They would be like pretty, you know, crappy videos, like not very good. And I would just send them to her and she'd be like, these are great, you know, awesome. And then she would just make something awesome out of it. And I, so like, it kind of encouraged me to like kind of step out of my shell more and produce more. And um, yeah, it was just a really, really cool thing. I, I really enjoyed it. She did a fantastic job. How much were you able to actually follow along with her reporting of your tour divide? Because a lot of it was on her stories. So after 24 hours, it's gone. Right. Yeah. I probably missed some of the stories, but I still, you know, I would check in. Um, that was, I had the app on my phone. I had Instagram on my phone for the ride just so I could easily check in. And, um, I was able to see it every, uh, you know, few days and it would be just so fun for me. Like just, it would be so entertaining. And then like all the comments on it were just awesome. So it actually was like a really positive experience for me um with social media like it really like boosted me you know because so many people were engaged and georgia was just being hilarious and uh, it was just something to look forward to you know to look to look for when when i got into town so yeah it was really fun yeah we were all looking forward to it if you're following along i mean her her coverage was uh just the best so okay so we got jambi jambi producing your social media she obviously took a really, really fun approach to, you know, her telling of your tour divide. What was your approach? What were your goals going into it? Not the social media aspect, actually the race. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, so, you know, I have never like ridden my bike loaded for a hundred miles every day for like more than three days. Um, and that was like six years ago on the Oregon Outback. 
Um, so I had no idea what this would be like for me. And I didn't, you know, I didn't train by riding a hundred miles in one day. Like I trained by riding 65, you know, doing a bike tour where I rode like 65 miles one day, which also include like a two mile thousand foot hike a bike. Um, and then at like 55 miles the next day. And, you know, I'm in Durango, Colorado, so I'm at altitude and steep. And my goal was to finish in 25 days, but my limit, I was like, cause I'm going to Iceland. I, I have to get pulled off the course in 32 days. So really that was kind of my focus was just to meet my goal of, you know, finishing in 25 days and, or 32 days, but while maintaining just this nice balance of maintaining my health and, you know, happiness and enjoyment and having fun on the route, I have had, um, I have Epstein bar, which is mono. Um, and so after big bike tours, I have gotten pretty dang sick. Um, so I was just trying to be aware, like, you know, I can't just go out and like, kill myself out there, you know, like it's going to be, I'm going to finish the ride and get super sick over the years. I've really just kind of been focusing on just maintaining a healthy balance for myself. And, um, and yeah, that was my goal. I was, you know, I wanted to have fun out there. I wanted to stay healthy. I wanted to, you know, keep true to my intentions and just do the best ride I could do. And what was your final time? 21 days and uh yeah. four hours 10 minutes or something like that yeah yeah you kicked your own ass i did yeah i was uh i you know immediately upon like the first day or two i realized that the course was you know a lot more rideable and easier than i thought but it was going to be just based on like stuff that I do myself. Like I do a bit more technical stuff with more climbing. Um, and so it was a bit easier. And then, you know, of course, you know, I had never, you know, ridden for that many hours in the day. I was riding from like just before sunrise until just after sunset every day. And that's a lot of hours to ride. And, um, so I was able to get a lot done in that time that I didn't expect as well. So got six, eight hours of sleep every night felt really good about that and uh it's funny because i was looking at the uh track leaders after the fact uh, after the ride and it turns out that i actually had the second fastest average speed out of the whole field <laughs> whoa and, but it's just you know a matter of moving speed moving speed yeah it's, and then you know and then the sleeping you know the stopping speed is where you know i put i get placed you know Cause it's all yeah. a matter of how much you want to not stop. And, you know, I'm, I'm just not willing to, at this point in my life, I'm, I'm not willing to do less sleep at this point. I think, um, yeah, I was just very, not for that long. Yeah. Yeah. I just felt healthy. I felt really healthy throughout the ride and maintained good, good mental health as well. And I think it was all because I was getting enough sleep. Was it Lauren? I have her name written down yeah, here somewhere that got first place. Okay. I'm, I have her name written down. I'm missing it right now. I don't know how, how, if you saw the dots from, you know, the first and second place on the men's side with uh, Brendan and, and Jay Peterberry, I actually had uh, the second place men's finisher on. Uh, he was my last ga- uh, guest, Brendan, but they were so close the whole race. They were yo-yoing back and forth. And I mean, just always pretty close. Yeah. If you look at the women's race, you and Lauren were also really close. There wasn't any back and forth, but you were like on her tail the whole time. 
how aware were you of her dot and, and were you, were you chasing her, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was aware just because people were like texting me and telling me that I was, you know, I was so close. And, um, so yeah, I did, I did get a little sucked into the race element, um, the first few days and I was, I was chasing her, you know, on day, like, day two, day three, I think. And then on day four, it was like the hottest day on route. It was the ride from, um, for me, it was the ride from like essentially Helena to Butte. And um, that was just like, that was pretty much the hardest day for me on the ride. And at that point I was like, you know, I'm just not, I can't, I need to slow it down. I need to like, you know, if I'm going to finish, I need to like revert back to my initial intention and take care of myself. You know, this is a really long ride. And, um, again, like what was my plan going to be once I caught her, like pass her and then I blow up and then (laughs) she just catch me again. So I actually really liked being right behind her the whole time. Like I kind of knew, um, knew she was there. I mean, as the route and the course went on, like she built her, her distance, um, built the gap, um, more cause she just wasn't sleeping as much. You know, she was, she was definitely not, she was sleeping a lot less than me. And, uh, but yeah, it was still funny the whole time because she was actually, it sounds like from what she told other people that told me she was worried about me and, uh, just, you know, I was essentially stalking her the whole time. And what, annoying pressure would that be to to be dealing with that the whole time but at the same I'd time I'd rather be also, in your your shoes yeah exactly I I felt pretty good about it because I was like having such a good ride and like not feeling you know tired or or worn out I didn't feel like I could go past her and and maintain it but I felt like I just felt really um satisfied back there <laughs> And, um, well, it's interesting if you look at like the sleep versus speed and that's part of the equation is, you know, how much sleep so you can, you know, perform and and ride as fast as you can versus it sounds like she wasn't sleeping as much, but if you were able to maintain that distance, it means you were riding faster than she was. So there's an interesting balance there. Totally. Yeah. I think if you look at the numbers between Lauren and I, it, it, yeah, I mean, if I would have engaged, it would have been an entertaining, uh, entertaining race because she was also on a gravel bike too, and I was on a mountain bike. Oh yeah. So um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So different, very different approaches, and um, but yeah, yeah. Let's talk about your bike. So um, if anyone was following along, your bike fell off. Well, you tell the story. Your bike fell yeah. off a bike rack as you were going down the highway. Like what the yeah. heck? Yeah, yeah, I know. So it what happened? Not- Thankfully, it wasn't a full-blown highway. It was, you know, an interstate kind of smaller road. But, um, yeah, just driving. Uh, we're out south of Sealy Lake in route to the start. You know, we were going to get up near the start and just kind of camp and relax for, like, three days before the ride started. And um, we're headed up, and we're, you know, we're about going 60 miles an hour, and we hit this bump in the road and uh you know our 
our truck kind of like did this like seesaw bounce kind of thing. You can feel the bike rack flexing back there. And um, it snapped, the bike rack snapped and something fell off the back of the car. I was like, what was that to Adam? And he was like, I think it was a bike. And I was like, was it your bike? Like I was hoping it was his bike. And, um, and he was like, no, I think it was your bike. And so we stopped and, um, and yeah, I was, you know, it was like seeing a pet, get hit by a car like it was just like running after it and you know at first it seemed like it was all superficial the handlebars were kind of you know out of position handlebar tape was totally ripped up like seat was all ripped up and pedals and components you know there's nice shredded components um and I was like okay well this seems like mostly fixable but then I like looked a little closer and the frame the seat stay was cracked and then, you know, also realized the the straps of my frame bag had been ripped off in the impact too. So my frame bag was, was ruined. And so, yeah, at that point, pretty much thought I had just spent, you know, two, two, three months of my life, like preparing for this massive undertaking to have like the worst thing in the world happen, like before, <laughs> like three yeah. four. So I, I was like, it's over, you know, I'm going to go back to Durango, figure out what this I'm- is a carbon bike too. Just, I don't, I don't know if you mentioned it, but for people listening, yeah, it wasn't steel where you could just weld it back together. It was, it's carbon. Right. It's carbon. Exactly. Exactly. And so, yeah, I was like, going to have to figure out what I'm going to have to do for the month of June, I guess. But we, <laughs> we stopped and we turned around, you know, started heading home and we stopped in uh, Missoula, Montana for the night. Oh, so you actually were like, you were headed yeah. home. Yeah. Cause I it didn't was know like, that. Oh, we can't go forward. <laughs> like, what's the point? Okay. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So we stopped in, in Missoula and that night I texted Russ. He's like Russ Roca, Pathless Pedaled. And, um, cause he's like the only person I know in Missoula. And I was like, I first asked him if he knew anyone that could repair my frame bag. Cause I was too embarrassed to ask him about the frame. I was just like, I, I was kind of hopeless at that point, but I was like, well, maybe I can fix the frame bag. <laughs> and so, but he did, he put me in touch with bedrock sandals. And they were like, yeah, come by the shop first thing in the morning. We'll, we'll sew it back up. I was like, great. And then, so then I was like, okay, Russ, um, do you know anyone that would be willing to fix a carbon frame, you know? And because at that time, Adam and I were like YouTubing how to fix a carbon frame with like fiber materials that you can buy from a hardware store. And so I was like, I really don't want to do that. Like I would like it to be, you know, repaired or to try to find a replacement bike, but I knew finding a replacement bike wasn't going to be possible just because of the, the global bike shortage. So, so I was like, I just really want to fix my bike. <laughs> yeah. He didn't know of anyone at first, like definitely not in Missoula, but then he came back later and was like, maybe reach out to pursuit cycles in Bozeman and see if they would help you. They're like a carbon, custom carbon manufacturer in Bozeman. And so I emailed them that night and, you know, explained my situation. And when I woke up and then the next morning, by the time I woke up, I had an email back from um, Carl at Pursuit Cycles saying that, you know, 
they don't normally do repairs, but because I'm, you know, doing the tour divide and <laughs> trying to do all this stuff, they would see if they could help me. And but we just have to get to Bozeman. The bike would have to be totally stripped down and then they would like wrap it and bake it. And then I could take it back and build it back up. So I was like, I was still daunted by all that, but you know, reality had shifted. There was hope, you know, like, and yeah. so yeah, next day we just saw bedrock sandals and they fixed the bag. And then um, we drove, you know, three and a half hours to Bozeman had my um, buddy, Adam Sklar stripped my bike down, took it to pursuit they, you know, they're going to keep it overnight and have it ready for me the next morning. So picked it up the next morning, alter cycles, built it up before they opened. And uh, by noon the next day, I was back in route to get to the start, which it was pretty dang incredible. And um, yeah, like it really like that, you know, community, um, that whole effort to get me back on the bike, just like, I think it just gave me so much momentum throughout my ride. Like I was just so, um, so full of gratitude because otherwise I wouldn't be doing it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to ask the question, you know, mentally, how did that impact you like before the race? And then even like during the race, were you worried about it breaking? Like, did it kind of set you off on a bad, it sounds like it set you off on a great tone. You were just like, so grateful. Yeah, it set me off on a really good tone. I wasn't worried. I actually think my bike is um, stronger now with that carbon repair. Um, <laughs> people are like, yeah, throw it away. And I was like, no, it works great. You know, it's, it's a really yeah. good repair. They're, they're total professionals. Like it's a, it's a really solid repair. And, um, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't worried about it. And I, I, I was, yeah, I was just kind of more fueled by that, that gratitude and just, um, you know, that that moment of like realizing that the ride was over and the crisis that lasted probably like six hours you know and then the night you know I was like not sleeping and then the next day my reality had totally changed again so I didn't have to sit in that dark place for a very long time you know the the light came through the tunnel and you know I could see the light and um yeah and then you know when the my handle, I don't know if you saw that my handlebars eventually cracked because of, uh, you know, they, they were probably, they probably received a lot of the impact, but they seemed okay, you know, when we were building the bike back up. So we just used them, but a thousand miles into my ride, they cracked. And, um, so, again, had to kind of do the same thing over again. Like I was like texting friends, like, you know, I envy that can send me some bars, like, and, um, to Pinedale, you know, 300 miles down the route. And so, yeah, again, got put in touch with someone at Envy and, um, they, um, sent a replacement handlebar to, uh, geared up in Pinedale. And then I just rode for like 300 miles without riding in the drops. So Cause it was the yeah. drop part that was broken and I could ride in the hoods and the tops and stuff, but yeah, that's definitely doable. And one of the nice things about drop bars too, cause I've done that same thing where you just, that flare part that comes out can, can crack. Yeah. 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 How did you train? You said you didn't ride over a hundred miles. Uh, you're obviously in Durango, so you're in an excellent place for training. Yeah. What was your training strategy going into this? Yeah. So I did like some weekend overnight bike tours, And, uh, again, like I didn't do, 
you know, I, in the winter, you know, I spend my winters in Arizona, so I was able to get a lot of like good riding in Arizona. Um, but when I got back to Durango is, um, I just was a little bit more uh, limited on time. So I do weekend bike tours. And then during the week, I kind of, my, my partner, Adam, um, used to race road bikes and, and stuff like that. So he kind of has like an idea of, of, of like real training schedules. But, um, but yeah, I just kind of set up a daily thing. My, the overall goal was just to be riding every day, get used to riding my bike every single day. And I would just do different things those days. And, and really it was all about keeping variety in my, my routine. So one day I'd be right riding my mountain bike. The next day I'd ride my gravel bike. Sometimes I'd ride my e-gravel bike, you know, like I was just riding all different kinds of bikes, all different kinds of rides, you know, I did some of that like long, slow distance and I did some like mashing. I did core workouts and kettlebell workouts just to kind of like build my, um, you know, my core fitness. And uh, I was really relying on the fact that, you know, I have, I know how to live on my bike. You know, I've done long. Um, right. You're very comfortable. And, yeah, I'm comfortable. And then I've also done lots of like long distance, single day gravel ride. So, you know, I know that like I have the ability to ride the distance if depending on the the course. And I also just like tend to uh, on my own time, you know, on my own like bike tours, I tend to do rides that are more technical and uh, more climbing than what the tour divide has, which, or the great divide mountain bike, which is all very, very rideable aside from a few, you know, few short passes there. It's all really rideable. So that was one thing that kind of stuck out to me in your interview with, I, I only know her as Jambi Jambi. How Georgia. do you say your name? Georgia. Georgia. Yep. Yep. Okay. One thing that I took away from y'all's interview was that it seemed like you were, you know, if we're talking about expectation versus reality, the reality of the tour divide or great divide route for you was that it was easier than what you were used to. Yeah. Yeah. It was the course was. Yeah. I've never done the tour divide. Can you, can you describe for people who maybe have never done it, like what it's like? And I think for you to say, well, it's easier than I expected. I mean, that's kind of a big statement, you know, it is a big statement. And I feel, you know, like, again, you got to look at me from, you know, from my perspective as someone that, you know, does stuff like this a lot. And, um, so I'm coming from that. If you're totally new to bike touring, it could be the hardest thing you've ever done. So Disclaimer there. <laughs> so the stats of the route are, I think it's like 900 miles of pavement and then 400 miles of single track, but it's not true single track. I think what they um, are calling single track on um, for these 400 miles is also like Jeep road quality stuff, you know, double track or something like that. And then the rest is gravel, smooth, like gravel roads. And I say smooth and I mean like drivable two wheel drive kind of gravel roads. And so within that, you know, you're getting roads that are washboard, which is, you know, can be really challenging. And then also, you know, you're, you're riding on the continental divides. So it's about hundred for our ride, which was border to border. It was 2,400 miles with about 150,000 feet of climbing. So yeah, it's uh, for me, that was like an average amount of climbing of 7,000 feet per day, which 
again, that's, that's more than I actually normally do, but, you know, over the course of 120 or 130 miles, like it, you know, it's, it's actually not as, you know, consistently steep as where I normally spend time riding my bike. So, so yeah, I would say that's kind of how I'd say it was very, um, rideable in the sense that there's just a lot of just gravel, gravel roads, you know? The other thing that I heard you say that I never heard anyone else say was that it was, I think you said it, that it was like laid out that the route is so good that the scenery is always like pretty interesting and beautiful. Yeah. I really thought that I was really impressed. You know, it, there were very, you know, few moments where you're like, Oh, this is a crappy part. You know, it was all just um, really beautiful. All the regions that they were able to map through and really connect um, just kept it really interesting and and fun. Yeah, that was nice. It's funny. You know, I've talked to so many people that have done the tour divide, obviously, and no one has ever I know I've never heard anyone say that. Um, But you would hope it would be beautiful and all the pictures you see are beautiful and stuff. But I've never actually heard anyone say it. And so I was kind of curious about that. Yeah. I wonder if they're just like looking down the whole time. You know, that's definitely something you kind of notice when you're riding so, so far a distance every single day, like you're not really absorbing, you know, your surroundings as much. You're kind of just like head down focus on the road, the the road ahead of you. So um, that could be a thing. Yeah, for sure. I guess it just depends on where your interest or, you know, uh, attention is. Right. Let's talk about gear a little bit. I know that you were concerned about your bivy. I know this from Jambi's video that y'all did. That was pretty entertaining where he got the garden hose on you and stuff. <laughs> so um, I believe you took that bivy with you. How did it work? Because I know you also got rained on pretty well. So Right, right. Well, it worked really great until I started getting rained on a lot. And it, it wasn't a matter of the rain soaking through the bivy. It was a matter of like packing up and unpacking every day, like in, in the rain and getting my stuff wet. And so it wasn't a problem in Montana when it was raining because, you know, the sun would come out and then I would just dry all my stuff out and then repack it. It was all, all good. But when I got down to like Southern Colorado and New Mexico, it was just raining all the time and the sun wasn't coming out. There was no opportunity to, to dry things out. So at that point, I just, that was probably the most like mentally challenging part for me because I was struggling with keeping my stuff dry because all my stuff was just getting wet every single day. And so I just kind of had to tell myself at that point, like, Hey, I want to finish. And if I have to get more hotels in this last part, than I thought I was going to, then so be it. Like it's whatever, <laughs> like fine. You can't control the weather. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, you know, I think, um, looking back, I think if I had a, um, a small tent and waterproof bike bags, I think I wouldn't have had, um, much of an issue. Um, because so a tent for like a staging area, changing clothes, that kind of stuff, you could even cook in there. Exactly. Exactly. And it would just give me more confidence and peace of mind just to be out there in, in really bad conditions. And then, yeah, the bike bags would just keep all my stuff dry. And so, um, yeah. And, you know, it's just so funny because like, I just never expected so much rain on the tour device. It's kind of very uncommonly an uncommon amount of rain that we got this year. And, you know, I just read things from previous years that just people didn't see rain very much at all. And that was another reason why I was like doing it in June, because I was like, 
I don't want to be in Durango in June because it's so hot and dry, you know, and that's how it's going to be. And I might as well just like be kind of like doing some, keeping myself (laughs) occupied. Um, But yeah, it turned out to be very rainy, which I just kept telling myself, like, this is good for, this is good for the earth, you know, the New Mexico. <laughs> nice. I like that. And, you know, I just kept saying that, like, I tried not to take it personally, even though I started taking it personally in the end. <laughs> I have a, an obscure gear question for you. So I saw on one of these videos and I couldn't see the whole picture didn't show, but you had a string that was like laced through like your water bottle and through your bike. And do you know what I'm talking about? A string that was connected to my bivy? It looked, it, it, it looked, okay. So I asked Jambi about it. Sorry, I'll just call her Jambi. Yeah. Uh, and she thought it was to, you would, you would maybe attach it to your bike to keep the bivy up off of you. Oh, like, yeah. you know, how you pull right. with a string. Yep, yep. But, and I didn't know if it was like a safety thing. Cause it looked like it had been weaved through a lot of your gear or something to where like, you know, it's like, okay, well, if someone comes and takes my bike in the middle of the night, it'll like pull the string or something. Yeah. You know, if, if it was strung through my bike in some way, that was not intentional, but yes, it is a string connected to my bivy that keeps, keeps like the head face area kind of off of my face. And so normally I just use it to tie to like a tree, but sometimes I don't have a tree. Um, I tie it to my handlebars. So maybe that's what, maybe that's what you're kind of like tie it to some place on the bike that will keep it off of my face. So yeah. Sorry. Just a weird i just saw that string and i was my curious mind perked up and i'm like what what is that going on what secret does sarah know about (laughs) yep so i mean you're done now what what would you do differently if anything hindsight's 2020 i mean how did how did your race go overall are you I, i mean it sounds like you're really happy with it but i mean going back and doing again what would you change Gosh, well, you know, I, maybe the tent and the waterproof bags, but honestly, like I am so dang happy with how I did. Like I exceeded my expectations in so many ways and I'm like so satisfied by like how I felt when I was doing that ride. And so, yeah, like the only thing that I could do to do this ride again would be to like really race it and like not sleep and stuff. But I, I'm not there yet. I'm, I don't, I'm not ready to do that. And, um, I don't blame you. Yeah. And so I, I want to, um, I would like to do more of these kinds of challenges in the future, but you know, in different places, you know, around the world and stuff like that. So I'd love to to do more of these, but with the same kind of goal I had with this is just to like, kind of find my happy balance of, you know, pushing myself to, to my limit, but also maintaining like a, just a healthy, healthy balance with everything. Well, I mean, that's one thing we talk about a lot. And one of the really neat and appealing things about these types of races or efforts or whatever is, you know, anyone can do it and everybody can do it their own way. You can not sleep, you could tour it, you can, you know, what you can stay at a hotel every chance you get. I mean, it it doesn't matter. You know, it's up for you to decide how you want to approach it. But there's, there's no doubt that like finishing the tour divide is huge. It doesn't matter if you come in second place or last place. It's a huge accomplishment. Did you like learn anything about yourself? Did you like, do you have any like takeaways two weeks off the tour divide that like, you know, I mean, you were out there for three weeks, you know, I mean, any takeaways from your experience? 
I mean, I think what I took away is just that like I'm capable of so much. And that was that was an awesome realization. Like I'm I'm capable than more than more than I kind of think most of the time. And that was really great. I I think I took away just like this huge amount of like gratitude for community, which I didn't expect. I really thought I was gonna go into this ride and feel alone out there. But I, the last thing I felt was alone. I felt just, you know, so supported. Yeah. And I just learned that, you know, order two extra things at a restaurant and put them in your, um, in your bike bag for meals later. Cause that's, you know, that was like the easiest thing. And I didn't really, I was like, Oh, I'm going to make my normal like tortillas every night, like make myself, yeah. but that was too hard. You know, it's too hard to like motivate and also find those ingredients all the time. It's just easier to get, get that stuff at a restaurant, which, you know, I just never really did that before. And then, um, also just learn how to live in a sham one chamois for three weeks. <laughs> that was, I, that was a totally new thing for me. So totally had to work that out. And, um, yeah, I feel kind of good about my, uh, my system that I ended up with. <laughs> let's uh so i'll tell you brendan's system he actually uh didn't have any saddle sores either um he brought two different chamois the first time i'd heard about anyone doing that but he brought two different kinds and so that it would interact with your sit bones and the saddle just a little bit differently and then he would wash one let it dry and then have one they would use and then switch them out which sound like i mean for him, he was racing. He was like, I'm going to try to, you know, take this, um, whenever he found himself in that position, he's like, I'm going to try. And and that's a time suck. You know, it's a little bit of a time suck, but yeah. What, what was your strategy? It sounds like it worked as well. Yeah. Well, so I had gone into it, um, because I didn't, I don't normally wear chamois. Like I usually wear like Merino underwear with, yeah. um, with overshorts. And so, but then once I started riding the distances I was riding, I was like, okay, the chamois is more comfortable and I would like to wear this, you know, more. So, um, <laughs> So what I did was, um, I would just, yeah, I would just try to wash it as much as possible. So I would wash it in, um, creeks, but I would also go to laundromats. I went to a lot of laundromats and anytime I got a room, I just tried to make sure I was staying in a place that had laundry. And so, yeah, wash it, you know, as, as frequently as I could. And then I just kind of had a nightly routine of like baby wipes tea tree oil. And then I bought some like natural baby diaper rash cream that I would put on after all that stuff. Yeah. Everything stayed really healthy and and clean and clear. And yeah, that was good. My girlfriend who is also named Sarah spelled the same way will be happy to hear you say tea tree. She like, she loves that stuff and puts it on everything. (laughs) Yeah. It's really good for, for saddle, saddle sores and hot spots and stuff just, and it like, it kills whatever, whatever's trying to grow there with overnight. So anytime I had something that I could feel, I would put that on and then it would clear up the next day, which was, which was awesome. It's a magic, it's a magic ointment for sure. A magic ointment. Yeah. Uh, she's just turned me on to a tea tree recently. At first I was put off by the smell of it. Um, but once you get over the smell, um, it's all good. So, uh, I know you are headed, where are you headed to Iceland? What else you got going on? Yeah, I'm headed to Iceland, um, next week. And then I'm doing, um, the steamboat gravel race in August. 
I'm also registered to do a, a multi-day, um, a stage gravel race in British Columbia, but, um, I'm kind of up in the air about that, I think right now. And then end of August, first two weeks of September, um, Adam and I are going to Crete to do a bike tour together. So, um, that'll be really fun. I'm excited. That's, I'm really looking forward to that the most, I think, out of everything. <laughs> Just uh, be able to do it at your speed, take your time. Yeah, yeah, whatever. you know, we, you know, he's, he's my number one, like, travel companion. We have so much fun. We've traveled all around the world together. And, um, yeah, we'll just be doing our thing. We'll be uh, riding from beach, beach to beach and eating awesome food and, and camping and just, like, enjoying ourselves out there, you know, just living the life, you know, having a little vacation because he's he's been in um he's getting his master's degree in social work so he hasn't been able to travel with me and, or to do very many rides over the past year and a half so um this is this is something I'm really excited for so social work that's yeah um I was going to say exciting. I don't know if that's exciting, but it's a much needed. We need people that are doing that. Yeah, so for sure, for sure. And it's hard work, you know, it's not, you know, from, from it is. I know people have done it and I mean, you kind of carry those stories and you know, all that stuff with you, you know, I mean, it, it can be difficult to like interact with people who are struggling on a daily basis. So yeah, it's not, it's not a job everybody can do. And so that's why I say we appreciate people that can do it. Yeah. So all these events that you're doing, how much are you in control of your schedule? Are you getting to pick the things? Are you just a lot of opportunities that are coming your way and you're like, I'll do that one, that one. Like how, do, how does that work out? Yeah. It just kind of, um, you know, for the, the gravel races, um, before COVID started specialized had kind of created a gravel team that we didn't actually end up doing because of COVID. Um, so I was signed up for these gravel races, um, through that and, um, but the team no longer exists. So I'm just like, the, these registrations are just carried over from, from last year. I was supposed to do these last year. And so I'm doing them this year instead. So that's kind of how that happened in terms of like the tour divide. Honestly, it was not like really thinking about doing it. But my friend, Aria, she had reached out to me in the winter and was like, I'm going to do this. You should do it too. And I was like, oh God, I no, 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 no. And so I like sat on it, you know, for a couple few months and it was just always kind of in the back of my mind. And I just kind of wanted to figure out something to do, you, you know, again, and I've been, you know, kind of readjusting my, my traveling and my writing just because Adam's no longer, you know, traveling and writing with me. So I'm doing more solo stuff. So I'm kind of like, just kind of figuring out more things that I want to do solo. And so this kind of just kept being in the back of my mind until I met, um, Pearly, who was also doing the tour divide and Pearly was doing the sky islands odyssey route in February or, or March. And she came through just like on this day where my parents were visiting. And I was like, I think I'm going to do the tour divide. Not 100% sure, but I'm, I'm really leaning towards it. And then Pearly shows up and she's like, I'm training for the tour divide. And Pearly turned out to be an awesome person. We chatted for a really long time. And then after that point, I was like, okay, I'm going to do it committed, you know? And so that's how it went. I wanted to talk about, you raised money for the Karen project Yeah, mm -hmm. or Karen project. Karen. 
Karen, Karen project saying it because it sounds like it's the Karen project. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's the Karen project. Um, Yeah. So what they do is um, they're an organization that allows people to use their platform to fundraise um, for uh, various different grants that go to programs that outdoor programs that increase access to the outdoor outdoors amongst um, teen girls and preteen girls. And so I just really love that format that they were doing. And I was like, well, this would be, you know, and I was coaching Devo, um, Durango Devo Explorers, which is like a youth um, cycling program here in Durango. And so I was doing some coaching with them. And yeah, I just, for me, my experience as a teen and preteen was very, uh, you know, I had wished I had had an outlet um, like cycling at that age because it would have helped me uh, in terms of like how much trouble I ended up causing later down the road. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I felt really called to those grants. And so, yeah, just reached out to them, saw if I could, you know, and they were all about it. And so we just, uh, we just launched it. And I actually, my original goal was $5,000 because that's how much one grant to one organization is. And uh, I actually reached that goal before the ride even started. So I increased the goal to 8,000. So yeah. That stood out to me. I have two daughters and uh, hopefully they will be cyclists. If not, it's okay. But, um, uh, definitely have an interest in, I, I love to speak to women, um, and, and that are great examples of, you know, you can do anything you want to do. And, um, Kern project, uh, you know, I mean, I have a 12 a, a year old daughter that like fits right, right in there. And so I agree, man, keep them busy. You know, the kids, uh, I got into a lot of trouble just, you know, if you're left to your own devices, I mean, I think it's good to have something that you're passionate in and then, you know, try to foster that along. And, and so just having those opportunities are, are really, you know, important. So I thought that was a cool thing that you did on top of just, you know, going to ride it, but actually finding, you know, a way to, to give back as well. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was actually like really productive because, you know, there's so much people just love the tour divide. So it just naturally just engaged so many more people. And so I was able to use that, um, that momentum to raise money, which was really great and effective, I thought. And, you know, just like finding what you love to do at a younger age, like finding the, the fact that the outdoors is a place that you can feel free and, you know, do things that you love. Like to me, I think that's just so important. And, um, because I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know that until I got, you know, graduated from high school. I was like, Oh, this is where I belong. This is where I, I feel my best. And, um, and my life changed drastically once I realized that, like I was headed in one, one direction before, and then a totally different direction after. And so, um, yeah, just maybe a little earlier introduction would have kind of saved, you know, my parents, my teachers, my coaches, all some heartache (laughs) myself. (laughs) 
some heartache. It's a, uh, I've, I've found that, you know, the outdoors is almost like an adult playground, you know, I mean, you can, it's endless exploring, playing outside, you know, I mean, that's kind of the way I approach it is the same way I did as an eight year old when I hopped on my bike and just left the house and went exploring and went into ditches and whatever, you know, we got into, that's the way I kind of look at it. And, you know, if you can embrace that as a young age, that playground is always there for you. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. Well, listen, I have taken up all of your time plus a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I, I do appreciate though. It, it is really, I've followed your Instagram for a long time. I've been kind of a, a fan of, I like your approach to, you know, the sport. And of course, everybody can do it their own way. The way you approach it appeals to me. And um, it's just, yeah, great to actually get to sit down and chat with you a little bit and, and get to know you a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Happy to do so. And and thanks. Thanks for having me and um, and for following, you know. Yeah, of course. Hey, that's why you put on social media. Yeah. So if anyone wants to follow you on social media, don't expect to DM back. But uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm kidding. Pretty slow on the DMs. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I do check in though. And, um, but again, like a great thing to do would be to sign up for my newsletter, which you can do on my website. Um, just hit the dispatch button on the, in the homepage and through that. And is that just sarahswallow.com? That's sarahjswallow.com. Through that, you'll get, you know, the latest updates from me. You'll get more of like my uh, personal side and you'll get notified about, you know, events that I put on and any fun projects that I'm doing. And um, you'll be the first, first to know. Awesome. Well, I am signed up. So all y'all sign up too. And uh, yeah, again, appreciate it. Thanks for being on Team Bike. Another great uh, ambassador of the sport. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And let's wish Sarah Swallow some good fortune as she travels to Iceland to compete in that gravel event. I'm sure she's going to do great and have a great time and certainly appreciate her coming on the podcast and chatting with us for a little bit. All right. I want to remind you, uh, head over to Ruby Coffee Roasters and check out all their great coffee lineup. They have been a great partner. I'm really looking forward to working with them because they are run by a cool guy and they're a cool company, but also they have really, really good coffee. So remember that at checkout, you can get 15% off one-time purchase or 20% off when you sign up for a subscription. And all you got to do is use that code bikes for death at checkout. So make sure to go over there, show them some love and appreciation for stepping up to be a supporting partner of the bikes for death show. And another reminder that the next bikes for death after party episode is coming out here in the next couple days with Claire Panisha. That is going to be available to patrons only. So you can sign up over at patreon.com forward slash bikes for death for as little as a dollar a month and get access to that as well as past shows and future shows. Thank you everybody for being here. I've got another great episode lined up for next week and I can't wait to get it out to you. So until then, be kind. Don't forget to rewind and go ride your damn bike. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes 